This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. All right, y'all. There is so much amazingness going on in my life, and I trust in y'all's lives right now as well, that I don't really know where to begin, but I'm just going to shoot from the heart, from the gut. Here we go. Trust in your gut. That's one thing I want to say. Trust in your gut. And that's what a lot about this podcast with Kevin is about. He has an incredibly true story that's continuously unfolding. I'm excited for y'all to tune in. And it's also the gut thing is uh, very relevant, actually. One of the many things I want to bring up to y'all's attention and my attention is that if you have not checked out the Naveen Jain episode um, about the power of poop, go ahead and check that out ASAP. Because we partnered with Viome. The Breaking Normal podcast has partnered with Naveen and Viome. And they uh, gave us our our own vanity URL, uh, viome.com slash breakingnormal, all lowercase. Definitely check out the show notes at breakingnormal.com slash podcast if you want to get on this. Because basically, they gave us the best deal they're offering publicly. Go ahead and get your order in. Um, and if you're wanting to know more about that and the power of why you would send your poop in the mail and get it analyzed so that they can give you a unique diet plan that's best for your gut because one man's food could be another man's poison um check out that episode it's really crazy naveen jane from my understanding is a multi-billionaire and it's not necessarily because he's obsessed with money it seems as much as it is he's obsessed with giving value and solving problems for many people and in this this situation he's wanting to make dis-ease optional or a choice through the technology that we have at our fingertips today and you know you got you guys know me a lot of you guys know a lot about me and how i believe a lot of times what's most personal is most universal and could could you could you consider it that maybe the most powerful way to analyze our health is in, is something as simple as what most people hide which is their poop wouldn't that be like a cosmic game of hide and seek Regardless if it's totally true or not, I think it's worth the experiment, and I'm so happy people like Naveen are stewarding in this technology to do that. I sent my poop sample in already. I'm so excited to get the analysis of my gut, and um, I highly encourage you to listen this this podcast in conjunction with Mike Salemi's Breaking Normal Gut Check Challenge and Naveen Jain's and the next one. There's like a whole theme going on here and the power of the gut. And I think that's a trending topic in culture right now. You know, there's been a lot of people that have been obsessed with the mind, a lot of people that have been obsessed with the heart, and let's not forget about the gut, which might be what unifies the heart and mind. And, uh, yeah, I, I think we've already gotten about seven orders from people the last time we recently checked, and I would like to double that. From my understanding, Naveen was saying that they sell it a dollar cheaper usually than it costs them. So they're not trying to make money off the customers as much as they are wanting to support the customers and giving them as much value as they can. I'm so excited about that partnership. And what I'll do at the end of this podcast, I will include my um, part of my audiobook, the chapter, at least part of the chapter or the whole chapter about my, my diet, Terry perspective. It's the chapter called Everything is Natural from 
Breaking Normal on Audible. And if you want to check out the whole book, which I highly encourage, go get that on Audible, Breaking Normal. It's doing great. I'm very proud of it. Um, the reviews are amazing, and I've really put a lot of heart, soul, and gut into that book. So it means a lot to me when y'all check that out, including this podcast. And, uh, oh, another thing, <laughs> Breckenridge, Colorado, June 13th. We recently upgraded our accommodations. We had this awesome place that could accommodate 30 in Breckenridge, but then we basically went with a bigger place that could accommodate 50 on a river, on a pond. You can, like, belay from the roof. It's like a huge family-friendly event, it seems. The first people to sign up was a family. There's another family that's looking to sign up to bring their four children. <clears throat> I just invited my whole family, my, my wife and daughter, they're intending on coming, my brother, Timothy, and now I just invited my rest of my family. So we'll see if we can get all the Rob Ross up there. I know there's been so many people over the years that wanted to come to a Rob Ross retreat that never got to make it. Well, maybe this is your chance because Timothy and I are already committed and we'll see if we can get Nathaniel and the rest of the Eisen clan there. And I encourage you to invite your family while there's still space and time. And in addition to that, we actually bought um, tickets, eight tickets today, for the Naco Bear Trevor Hall Island Nero show at Red Rocks Amphitheater, which basically happens the day that Tribe Design concludes, and that's not by accident. So if you want to attend a Tribe Design and then celebrate with us at the Red Rocks Amphitheater, go ahead and apply at internationaltribedesign.com and uh, get your tickets to that show as well. This is freaking exciting times, guys. I trust y'all are enjoying this podcast. And I, if I haven't heard from you with a review on iTunes, I'd love to get to know you, and I would love to get to know what you think about this podcast. And it's extremely helpful and reverent to the gods of the Internet known as algorithms to amplify the message of breaking normal. Um, so once again, if you want to review any of the things I mentioned in this intro or any of the things that Kevin talks about, and his incredibly true story, or anything of any of the episodes, go to breakingnormal.com slash podcast, and all the information should be there. And if you have any questions personally to me, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Much love to y'all. So stoked about the synergy that exists in the Breaking Normal ethos right now, and I trust it's only getting better for you, me, and everybody. Dream big, y'all. Wake up. This is a dream. Kevin Ballister. Kevin Ballister. I am here in with Kevin Ballister in Austin, Texas. And wh where are we at? So right now we are at the Spiritual Boss Babes pad. This is our signature backdrop. So Stephanie Bellinger, a good friend of mine, I'm half-sitting right now. and um, You know, we, we figured we'd, we'd do a podcast here. And the funny thing about that is I just met Stephanie the other night in such a synchronous way, so much synchronicity that I definitely took action on asking her to hang out with me and Deanna to figure out what's possible because something obviously is brewing. And she mentioned that that's a great idea and that she is going to New York this weekend. And now here I am at her place. Such another devout, like, I feel like God speaks <laughs> through synchronicities. And I'm continuously getting these affirmations known as synchronicities through this journey of podcasting for Breaking Normal. And um, this is another affirmation of that. And Kevin and I, we've been speaking, I, since I've been in Austin, I've spoken at a few events and or a couple of events, particularly the CICX Mastermind. And yeah. I think you spoke at one or both of those as well. And I saw that you have a book out, How to Feed Your Brain. Feed a brain. How to Feed a Brain. Any old brain. You can feed yours, your neighbors, your cats, whatever. 
<laughs> and uh, when we got the same night, I met Stephanie. It was a few nights ago. Um, me and you dropped in about the ridiculousness of the healthcare system, and you, because you firsthand have experienced it in an extreme way, from my understanding, that most people would probably highly fascinated to learn about. So I definitely want to learn about the coconut shell experience you had, what got you to the hospital, what you experienced while you were there, and what that catalyzed for your book, How to Feed the Brain, and your lifestyle currently. Hmm. And I want to make sure that I usually uh, pray before I even begin, but I want to make sure that you know that I'm in a continuous state of prayer and that's my intention in this podcast is to pray together and uh, let a good message live through us and to share a good message. And I'm excited to be here with you, my friend. Job bless. Likewise. Yes. Brother. Likewise. So first, um, what you were saying about uh, the synchronicity, um, I've recently been saying everything has been, is, and will continue to happen perfectly. Because, I mean, you think about it in the past, you wouldn't be here if everything in the past didn't happen perfectly to bring you here. And while you were in the past, it was the present then, and everything was happening exactly perfectly the way it needed to to bring you here. And in the past, everything was going to happen perfectly to bring you right where you are. So yeah, it's, it's like uh, just every... That that mantra has been great. Anytime like things are all screwed up, I'm like, everything is, has been, and will continue to happen perfectly. Including what happened to me, um, or whatever, what happened with me um, almost eight years ago. So uh, almost eight years ago, I sustained a severe traumatic brain injury. I was insulin unconscious, rushed to the hospital, put on life support. While I was in a coma, I was diagnosed with a diffuse axonal injury, which is a type of brain injury that statistically 90% never wake up from. And of the 10% that do, most are in a vegetative state. So my mom hears this news. And, um, and she was there the whole time, but um, trying to decide whether to talk about... Um, how music played a huge part. So I, I was a musician before my injury. I mean, I'm still a musician. But uh, my mom knew how much music meant to me. And um, and she actually taught me how to play the first song I ever learned how to play on guitar, which was Blackbird by the Beatles. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. And so she... She had one of my guitars rush to the hospital, and she began to play for me that song every single night. And on the twelfth night, I woke up. And uh, I, I I opened my eyes, and I, I it was like someone hit the reset button on the video game of my life. You know, I had to start over from level one. I mean, having a whole lifetime of skills, habits, and abilities, and just having them stripped away in one moment, one moment, it was intense. So, um, long story short, uh, a lot went into my recovery. At one point, I was steered towards, and well, at one point, my mom, I was released to my mom's care, where she could, she could uh, put in 
her own formula for the gastric feed because as we were talking about the craziness of the medical system the you know we all know the standard of care for hospital food is not great it's kind of gross yeah what i would say about that is and i mentioned this to you the other night as long as like pharmacies and hospitals like storefront checkout items to consume Hmm. are as available as i've seen them especially considering most people are in those facilities probably probably overindulging on those products and they're the ones that are like being pushed in the same place it's kind of seems like a racket of sorts as long as that's happening we got to we got to address the, the elephant in the room mm-hmm. of culture there and I, to take a step back with your personal story, uh, what what happened, by the way? So uh, I fell from a rooftop water tower um, in Brooklyn. There's well in New York, any any building under or over a certain number of floors is required to be equipped with a rooftop water tower in order to get pressure. You know, getting water pressure up to like the top floors. It's kind of hard against gravity, so they have a water tower that works with gravity to to give water down below. So I was up on a water tower, and um, and I I fell from that water tower. Oh, it's Phoebe. <laughs> Phoebe's the kitty. Can Phoebe come in? Yeah, please. And remember, if you ever want to check out the videos and actually see our faces <laughs> as our mouths it. move and all the what's going on, whether it's a cat appearance, a cat cameo, or whoever it is, go to breakingnormal.com slash podcast to get access to the videos as well. Um, okay, okay. So then, now to go a step back. Oh, and by the way, I, I had this in my pocket. This company, I'm basically considering going to the sponsorship. It's just CBD. Mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a little bit. If you want any, let me know. Mm. Um, but what I want to hear about while I do that is how did so you at this point they started feeding you through a tube? Is that correct? So yeah, so I'm in the hospital. I was unable to eat, walk, or talk for months. I was breathing through a tube. I was receiving nutrition through a tube, and um, so so as I was saying, like hospital food is gross. We all know that. Can you imagine what the processed liquid formula that's being fed to patients who are unable to eat conventionally consists of? Well, there's a faith in me that it'd be very healthy. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Well, there was. Um, yeah, no. Glucose syrup, soy protein isolate, milk protein concentrate, calcium caseinate, vegetable oil, fructooligosaccharides. And that's not one candy bar. That's breakfast, lunch, dinner, plus two extra meals for months or years for some patients. Like if if you have a parent or a grandparent that's in a nursing home or, or in a hospice and they're not able to eat conventionally, I'm talking about them. People on death row have it better, right? Like at least they get last rights. You get whatever you want. I want a steak, potato, and awesome salad. You know, no. They, they're, they're like war heroes who are literally receiving fortified glucose syrup as their last meal. It's insane. Strange times. Strange <laughs> times. So to uh, loop it back to the, your personal outcome of this and where we're currently at, it's continuously evolving. 
you how did you recover um because you not not only do you seem what whatever the percent was 90 percent don't wake up oh you seem very woke i'm, I'm woke <laughs> very woke so thanks for breaking normal and was there what's the golden i'm imagining the golden thread of a lot what you learned is in your book and maybe future books but I'd be curious to hear it from the horse's mouth, as they say, um, whoever they are, in whatever way you want to tell it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the the book I wrote is all about nutrition. This one's all about nutrition. Clearly, a whole lot more went into it than just nutrition. Like nutrition's the building blocks. And there was a point in my recovery when I was steered towards a uh, a more specific uh, nutritional protocol. Like when my mom started giving me real food, I started to regain abilities, which was amazing. But then when I was steered towards a more specific nutritional protocol, I began to regain clarity. I had been in the brain fog for a long time. And you don't know you're in a brain fog when you're in a brain fog because you're in a brain fog, right? It's like being in a stinky room. You don't know until you leave. And so as I came out of the brain fog, I was like, okay, first of all, what the hell happened? So I'm going through medical records, text messages, emails, um, piecing together what had happened. And then why did nutrition make such a big difference? And what could I do to give my brain the best shot to recover? So I was relearning how to walk at the time, but I had the internet, which you'll hear this a lot from from uh, people with debilitating conditions. Like you research like your life depends on it because it does. So the internet is just, I mean, I, I actually in, in the forward of my book, or not the forward, in the acknowledgments of my book, I actually thank the internet. <laughs> <laughs> because it really it, it it was it was so paramount like the internet gave me the ability to listen to podcasts to uh watch videos to read articles i i learned how to read peer reviewed research i started taking online courses from top universities like the university of chicago and johns hopkins and duke university and cal polytech Again, studying like my life depended on it. And then at the same time, I'm able to reach out to practitioners around the globe. And um, and taking all the culmination of everything I learned nutritionally. This is the only nutrition. I wrote my first book, How to Feed a Brain, Nutrition for Optimal Brain Function and Repair. And there will be more books, but that's, see, nutrition supplies the building blocks. Um, I think of it like, uh, like building a bridge. What do you, uh, you know, I think of many, many connections in my brain have been damaged, and I think of rebuilding those connections like building a bridge. So what do you need to build a bridge? You need supplies, and you need skilled workers. Supplies would be the nutrition, the brain-built nutrition, the right kind of nutrition. Skilled workers would be the therapy, the targeted therapy, the uh, the right kind of therapy, and also the mindset, the the choice of where to place your attention and your choice of how what perspectives you're going to take for your life.
And, um, you know, if we, if we do all the therapy and mindset and whatnot, but we don't supply the right nutrition, it's like having the best bridge architects, the most skilled designers and the hardest workers and pulling up with a truckload of toothpicks and expecting them to build something. It's a great metaphor. Thank you for sharing that. Conversely, the same thing's true, right? Like the nutrition is not enough alone. Well, on that note, one of the therapies I'm highly wanting to learn more about was the Blackbird therapy, mm. the music therapy, and synchronously enough, the la- the most recent application for our event that I got to listen to the interview call, I was sh- shadowing it, he came out of a, um, basically, he w- he had a big deal in the hospital, and it caused him to learn about music therapy as a study. Mm. And that's like his passion now. Nice. <laughs> so I'm highly curious nice. and fascinated about what your mom is dialed into and what that nice. did for you. Well, actually, all right. So so she would play for me every night, right? And and after I started um, eating real food that she would puree and feed through my gastric tube, um, I, I started regaining my abilities. It was, it was after that, that I was able to lift my wrist and enough to, uh, wrap it around a guitar. And as soon as I could, that's what I did. I had a throat surgery done and I was able to speak after that. And as soon as I could speak, I tried to sing. And I have no memory of that time while I was in a coma, but the first song I tried to play was Blackbird by the Beatles. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. Synchronicity, perfection, so many things. Your kitty's, kitty's tuning in. <laughs> wow. Uh, actually, earlier, she like hit one of those door stoppers and was like, ding, like the spring door stoppers. And it was all quiet in here. And then like, like, what's up, Phoebe? How you doing? And it's interesting you made that noise, too, because it makes me want to explore that topic a little bit more. It's almost as if that song, just as if I was going if you, um, if I was going to be spraying mist on you from a hot spring that had a lot of silicon on it, a lot of silicon or silica in it, just because you might be sleeping when I'm doing that to you, it doesn't mean it's not changing your biology and it's not staying with you physically even though you don't have a recollection of it totally. m- mentally so it's like as the music was embedded in you this the theme of the song may have been downloaded into you from or or expressed transmitted from your mother as a medicine and that's that's i don't know if that brings up anything for you I, music Absolutely. is highly captivating to me and what it, what is music what even is music <laughs> So I work with clients that, uh, that, that, you know, I often work with clients who have a loved one in a hospital setting in a compromised situation, like either in a coma or recovering from a brain injury or brain insult or, or something else. And when, when a client's comatose, um, it's, I mean, when someone's comatose, you are absolutely still receiving um, information. You're still picking up on things. And I think one of the, or in my experience, the most important, uh, determinant of a successful outcome is community support. 
is the community around and like collective intention um prayer you know it absolutely makes a huge difference and um and we're we're learning so much more about the power of intention and prayer and it like it it's becoming scientifically sound in some ways you know um bit by bit so it's cool i mean it's like it's all it's all energy and what's energy energy is what is cur- what we what we call something that is currently not measurable has this blanket name of energy but we sense it we feel it we know it's there but it's currently not like set up in a way where we can like give it a number and quantify it exactly and and whatnot but it is totally there and discounting it being like you know oh that's that woo woo stuff that's not scientific you're literally like dismissing evidence yeah you are uh, speaking a lot about the ethos of breaking normal so thank you for <laughs> thank you for being awoken and reminding us of it all and I, i'm curious about your personal perspective on this this hospital epidemic the structure of the hospital mm-hmm. so if if we are being if we if, if we are being um influenced by our environment as much as we're alluding to from songs or water or mist uh, there seems to be uh, some systematic issues with the the general hospital, I'd say. And I'm curious, like, do you what do you think what the main issues are? Uh, and the nutrition, obviously, being a major one we've already touched on. And then, do you have what do you think? Do you have any ideas of what might be best to do about this situation? <laughs> oh man, what to do? So let, let's talk about the situation. Um, so we're in a capitalistic society, good or bad. It's got, it's got its perks, it's got its like downfalls, whatever. Um, capitalism, when it comes to nutrition and when it comes to medicine is two areas where I don't, uh, I don't think it works very well because essentially capitalism is a supply and demand model, right? If we have a lot of supply of something, we want to bring the demand up. So if it's super cheap to manufacture a drug, now we have a huge supply of a drug. Let's bring the demand up. And what's the demand for a drug? It's a diagnosis of a condition or disease that 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 drug treats. So it's so backwards in the sense that it's like let's bring the demand up let's let's get more demand let's get more people sick let's have more diagnosis that we can give people um medications for and so we get this polypharmacy and all the it's it's a mess you know and there's i mean it goes deep it goes very deep and like Doctors, I mean, I mean, medical schools are highly funded by uh, by pharmaceutical companies, and that's crazy. So, like, um, who is it? Uh, Kelly Brogan. Can you move it up a little bit? Let's see if I'm getting. Yeah. I just kind of tapped it on accident. So, uh, Kelly Brogan, um, MD. Uh, psychologist in New York. She's amazing. She wrote a book called um, A Mind of Your Own. 
and she talks about just basically like she she went through medical school like grueling through medical school it's 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 no walk in the park and it's also like I mean you don't even have time to question what you're learning because you have a test on it the next day and like and your your peers your your classmates are are gonna look at you like dude do you know I I haven't slept in so long (laughs) like and you're like can we just get through this you know what I mean so and then and she talks about her um her difficulty coming to terms with like that she was she was fed a bunch of pharma pharma funded lies you know and so that's one aspect that's just like oh man we we're, we're dealing with this and we've we've dug it pretty deep in the pharmaceutical um control of uh, um of our our hospitals and our population you know and then with the food, it's almost like they, they feed each other. So then we have the food. What's what's supply for food is food, right? And then what's the cheap supply for food? Well, it's stuff that's shelf-stable, that'll last a long time, right? Like, um, so processed foods, um, grains, cereals, things like that. So we get the U.S. Department of Agriculture Food Pyramid, which, by the way, the USDA um, is, like, what's the purpose of the USDA? It's to, um, to well, actually, I went to their website, and uh, this is part of one of my presentations. I go to their website, and it says, we have, uh, I'm not going to get the quote perfect, but it's like, we have an interest in, uh, in supporting the interests of rural America, uh, giving economic opportunity to rural America to thrive. This isn't about human health. It's about economic opportunity for rural America, which is agriculture. So, <laughs> sorry, going roundabout a little bit. I'm, I'm loving it. It's, a, right. it's, a, it's something I'm very fascinated by, and you're expressing it, where I think a lot of people will be able to understand nice. it to new depths. So nice. thank you. Cool. Then um, so so what I'm saying is, we got we got the the USDA recommendation. So it's like food, the demand for food is more food, and the demand for food is hunger, right? The supply is food, um, the demand is hunger, and so how do we get people to eat and eat and eat and eat and still be hungry? We malnourish them basically obese people are malnourished like they're not getting the nutrients they need they're getting empty calories right we've all heard empty calories empty you know sugar wheat those are those are like the number one like empty there's there's very 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 little other um nutrients in sugar and wheat and, or, or sorry, and grains, um, flour. Yeah, we um, we we push those, you know, and then we realize that sweets we can't really push, so we're gonna put those up, and we're gonna lump the USDA food pyramid. We're gonna lump fat with sweets and alcohol. Like they're 
they're all villains, right? It's like, all right, sweet, sweets and alcohol is like moderate, very little. Yet, um, it's very clear that we require quite a bit of fat. And, um, and the type of fat is also extremely important. So I could get into specifics of the nutrition, but honestly, just pick up the book. <laughs> and then, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy more people will be thinking about this. Let's get that's awareness. It yes. seems growth takes place in awareness, acceptance, maybe the amplification of what the awareness that we've accepted, and then taking an action. And it's good to like let that bubble up. Get get feel what like feel what you want to do about this. And I I definitely for encourage start with yourself. It's uh, anyone who's listened to this start thinking about what you're purchasing, why you're purchasing it. <laughs> Maybe look into how people advertise at grocery stores. This is all of a sudden becoming a bit of a passion of mine of hmm. seeing the seeing the grocery store as quite a dangerous place for a lot of people <laughs> for the uninformed. It would be like. I've got. I can go out in surf spots. If someone just gets dropped off in one of those surf spots, and they are informed of the situation, that can be extremely dangerous. Or for someone that is informed, it can be extremely fun. And food is a beautiful. What a beautiful. The food is like the core essence of being a human being, and and enjoying life. And uh, culture has catalyzed it to be quite. The racket, quite the game, quite uh, the facade of sorts, mm. and get get clear so you can see the truth. And it's, mm. it's fun. It's fun to find the truth. And it's in the grocery store. They're mm. they're smart. It's a constant game. It's dynamically changing all the time. It's like casinos, you know. <laughs> like uh, I was I was rolling through the casino, and and actually, um, Keith and Michelle Norris from from Paleo Effects, they they presented last year. Um, for like a health expo during South by Southwest and they were talking about the human zoo which is essentially what we're what we're up against is this this um, this whole pathway that we're brought through to bring us to the result that is that is desired you know like we're gonna we're gonna give like super hyper palatable foods um, and, and mess with the neurology on things like there are so many studies done on, on appetite and, uh, and neurology and how these things go and they're not published because it's like, it's, um, it, it, it's for a company to know this stuff, but they don't want you to know they know this stuff, right? So it goes deep, it goes deep, it gets ugly, and it's it's kind of like, you know, you get to look at it, and, and instead of like, you know, pumping your fist and rah-rah and getting pissed and rage against the machine on it, you can kind of like step back and be like, huh, alright, I see that, like, I'm not gonna play that game, you know, and it starts with you, and then doing things like this, informing other people, doing podcasts, talking about this, and opening opening people's eyes, getting them woke, you know? Um, so, yeah, and we, we keep on doing this, and we move places. You know, this, so this year I'm speaking for Paleo Effects. Um, uh, what, on Sunday, I'm speaking for Paleo Effects, and the theme for this year is Challenge Authority, Defy dogma, 
demand different. And I love that this is a theme. So my, my presentation is the hospital nutrition revolution. As, as we uh, talked about, um, this is, and this is something we can do. And, um, man, I can, I can go into how this can be done. But essentially, like, there, it comes down to the standard of care, which I talked about earlier. And the standard of care, we all know hospital food is gross. And then we, we know that the guys should feed is atrocious. And that's the standard of care. Okay, so how do we go around the standard of care? And so I work with clients, and in the past six months, 100% of them have been successful in speaking with their medical team to not only get practices outside of the standard of care to be allowed, but to be facilitated by the medical team. And I want to empower patients everywhere to do this because it's, it's pretty simple. It's like, like the standard of care. You know what, it's, the standard of care was coined for, for medical malpractice claims. And for a medical malpractice claim, it requires that the defendant deviated from the applicable standard of care. Okay, what is the standard of care? It is the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just kind of get the gist of the quote, but it's, um, the type and level of care an ordinary prudent healthcare professional with the same level of training would provide in the same community um, under similar circumstances. So, ordinary, same, similar, same. So, if, if you or your loved one were given a grim prognosis like I was, would you like the ordinary healthcare practitioner to give you the same treatment that gets the same or similar results. Yet if they deviate from that, they're liable to get sued. See how this puts medicine at a, at a stalemate? Uh, yeah, I, I pick up what you're putting down. <laughs> and um, I'm excited to see some of the solutions spoken about, whether it's more right here, whether it's a paleo effects, whether it's in a future book. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one to uh, hold back. So, <laughs> well, uh, well, do you want to? Maybe you can bullet point some yeah, of no, this. Yeah, no, I, I what seriously, is, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> seriously, take two minutes. You ready? Let's go. Let's what do you do? Go. All right. So this is how I I get. Um, Here's here's the secret, or not not the secret. Here's what you need to know to empower yourself. Don't ask. When we ask, when we ask if we can do this other treatment, and the doctor replies with anything but the standard of care, they're putting their medical license in jeopardy. If we ask what they think about a treatment that is not the standard or the medical standard of care and they answer anything but recommending the, the standard of care, they're putting their medical license in jeopardy. So there's something called the tenets of medical ethics. And there are ethical principles in medicine, 
and the first one is patient autonomy. The patient has the right to refuse and to choose their treatment. So don't ask. Tell them what treatment you choose. And if they're like, if if the physician's still like, no, I'm I'm not doing that. You go, cool. Please refer me to someone who will give me the treatment I choose. The thing is, doctors are, are, they implement the standard of care. That's what their job is. It's up to you to do the research and to choose your treatment. Yet when you have a, uh, when you're in an emergency situation, you don't have time to do the research. And that's where what I do, um, I, 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 where I love doing what I do. So I, I leverage my, my knowledge, my experience, and my connections to find the treatments that will bring about the best possible outcome and to help my clients to choose their treatment and then to get that implemented. And it works every time. This is how we change medicine through education and empowerment. And where, um, I'm, I'm, this is like such an awesome service that you feel inclined to not only steward but offer. Do you have, if someone's interested, where would they look at your website? Or? Yeah, go go to feedabrain.com forward slash consult or, or adventuresinbraininjury.com forward slash consult. Cool. And then for, and I imagine too, what would be really fascinating is that at least for myself, what I, a lot of times what I would prescribe to someone to maybe get themselves out of a suspect situation might be the same thing I'm doing when I'm healthy as well, hmm. where that doesn't always look the same in hospitals either. That's the part no. that trips me out. Like I, I would say one of the, if it was someone's aim, if it's like someone's listening to this and they want to get a cold or get sick um, or physically ill, I think it'd be a great bet to spend a lot of time in hospitals and pharmacies. And um, that's so. That's why it's so fascinating to me. I'm like, wait a minute, what, you're wanting to get better, like <laughs> in this? Go to the sick land. So, <laughs> I'm curious. How do you, for people that are um, blessed enough, such as us, currently, and I trust as long as divinely right. best, that we're facing the more like the emergency of how do we thrive the best we can mm-hmm. and also would you any that go for both like someone that just wants to thrive more and someone that wants to heal mm. um or you got any big ones that more people might want to look more into yeah i mean this is why the 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 book i wrote is the subtitle it's how to feed a brain nutrition for optimal brain function and repair because when the brain's functioning optimally, it's repairing itself optimally. And this goes for everything. When your physiology is functioning, it's repairing itself. Because that's part of your body's function, is to repair itself. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really cool how we can learn so much about everything through healing. You know, healing really shows us um, a lot of what's what's best for just any time. The thing about medications is many of them just suppress symptoms. You know, symptom suppression is very profitable, right? Um, and so I, I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole. 
but but yeah so so when what we do to not suppress symptoms but to give our brain and body and our physiology and our mind and our um our emotional body what it what it needs to function optimally then it can repair itself optimally as well and then beyond the food what about thoughts what about the Mm. thoughts about the food that we're eating how important do you think that is and thoughts in general because i know you painted a beautiful metaphor to me that i resonated with i I love i i I love metaphors or parables around surfing farming like the farm Mm. or uh, poker (laughs) i I feel like i could just tell a whole story about life with those three i might i might need a poker one (laughs) yeah all right so um so yeah think of your brain as a garden you have 86 billion plants in your garden because you have 86 billion neurons in your brain. And to put that in perspective, there are less than 8 billion people on this planet. 86 billion in your brain. Your thoughts are like the seeds. And your attention to those thoughts, that's the sunlight and water. And we all have weeds in our garden. You know, um, I don't really need to go into what weeds are. I think everybody knows what weeds are. Basically, weeds are thought patterns, habits, whatever, that we don't want. And um, and it is subjective, you know. You actually asked me the other day, like, what's the difference between a flower and a weed? And I was like, perspective. And it's, it, I mean, that's that's the truth. But yeah, we all have weeds. And the thing is, we can't reach in and pull the weeds. It doesn't work that way. But what we can do is we can give our attention to the flowers we want to grow. And as those flowers grow, the attention shifts from the weeds to the flowers. Um, you know, the, the flowers are way more attractive than the weeds. So it gets more attention. Attention is the sunlight and water. And after a while, the roots of those weeds take over, the, or of those flowers, take over the roots of the weeds. And that's how we can grow a beautiful garden. And what's cool about this analogy is it works for everything. Politics, relationships, business. We don't change things by dismantling the old. We change things by creating the new. And making the new more attractive. And the attention shifts. Yep, I hear that. I hear that, man. It's... It reminds me, just, yeah, that's that's just such a good one for so many things, as you said. Thank you, man. Thank you. And, you, all right, you were also talking about thoughts surrounding food and, like, and like eating, like, eating something that we don't enjoy, being like, this is healthy for me. I'm going to force this down my pile. Right. <laughs> And yes, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's worse for you than eating something you enjoy. You know, even if what you enjoy is, uh, is Pringles or whatever, like, (laughs) I don't know if I was supposed to say name brands, (laughs) but anyways, yeah, like, even if it's, it's something, you know, that's not exactly healthy, like, it's better for, I actually say this in my book, I say, 
This is not about being dogmatic. This is about understanding how food affects your unique physiology and how those those effects affect your brain. The most important thing we can do is to enjoy our lives and to do so sustainably. So find that yeah, I mean it's it's about enjoying your life. That's what it's all about. It's all about enjoyment. And and when you walk into a room and you enjoy and you you're smiling, what happens to everybody around you? They smile with you. And if you go in and you're all pissed off, <laughs> The, the the people match each other's brain frequencies, you know, and so keeping that in mind, knowing that that your brain frequency, your which which truly is frequencies, um, is mirrored, and there really are mirror neurons. Like it is mirrored, people match your brain activity. It's amazing. So in that case, if I walked in here in a state of enjoy and you walked in here and and we and you were in a state of anger or vice versa, then what do you think happens? Do you mm. think there's a merging like a puddle of the mix of both or do you think one shifts to the other? Like what's there? What yeah. It I I I guess it depends. It's like when somebody I mean, it depends on a how well one person is at sticking the what's the word I'm going the conviction to their emotional state so if you have a, a strong conviction to being pissed off somebody being happy isn't going to do anything for you it's going to piss you off worse right like and you see this people that like can't stand people that are always uh positive and and happy and like they're they're enjoying their life like you know they <laughs> um i don't know if i can curse but so no <laughs> all right oh oh you can i was going to say i wasn't thinking about not answering if you don't know then you don't know you don't know but if if, if under my creative constraints you can do what you cool. want good i appreciate be it be in well, a state yeah. of joy yeah my friend thank you sir and on that note, we're hitting that 44-minute mark right now. Do you, how about we play a little popcorn-style cool. questioning back and forth for like three minutes? I like it. So you just whatever question you want to ask, and we'll do like kind of rapid-fire, rapid mm. questions and to wrap it up. How does that sound to you? All right, but don't make me do the first question because <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm in like – if I'm going to come up with very good popcorn questions, it's we'll probably see. going to be some deep ones. We'll see. I'm, I, I can I can pop deep fast. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of popping deeping fast, here we go. Um, do you, what do you think about Tupac? Tupac, man, Tupac's awesome, and I never really, really, really got into his stuff. I was way more of a uh, N.W.A. and um, Biggie Smalls, and there, there definitely was some Tupac, but man, he's such a smooth rapper. I, you know, the first album I ever bought was N.W.A. Straight Outta Compton. I was, uh, I don't know, ten years old. I'm happy I asked. Your, your turn. <laughs> oh man, um, yeah. So, on food, what, what is your, what is your favorite thing to eat? 
something that's peaking, like if either a fruit that's like in the peak of its season and it's like the ripest mulberry. It's arguably the ripest, biggest mulberry from that spring. Like if I can get my hands on that mulberry, when I get my hands on that mulberry, on that tree, I'm like, I yes, nature is orgasming and I got it. <laughs> yes. And or maybe the hunting, same like hunting or something fresh that I just procured myself with my own hands and I got the whole experience. I'm like, well, that's good. This is beyond even the taste good. It tastes good, but it's something else. Yes. Okay. Um, do you, would, would you suggest, like for a new parent, what do you suggest them to do about vaccinations? Hmm. Oh, man. That's a heavy question. I know. If any word, any direction, that's quick. A I know. That's why I did a quick, I wanted a quick answer. Research. Research. Do your own research. Look at, look to PubMed. Um, look and find the research that's out there. Um, and the lack of research in other areas. Um, I, I mean, this this goes deep. And honestly, like I I think if you can live with a, uh, I'm I'm not gonna say too much on this yep. one. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to get the quick answer because I know it could be a day long one. Yep, yep, yep. Um, do you have any pets? Yes, I have a pet. Pitbull named Oriya. 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 Yep. Boy or girl? Girl. Girl. Oriya. That's okay. what I figured. Where's Where's that name come from? Uh, uh, what my a dream my wife had. Nice. And then we looked it up. Google. We googled it, and all I can find beyond Google and beyond is it might mean a light of God in Hebrew, tra- roughly translated. And there's a lady named Oriah the Mountain Dreamer who's a famous poet who was visited by elderly women in her dream to rename her name Oriah. And that's when my wife was re- was visited by elderly women to name her Oriah. Whoa. <laughs> okay, final question. What human being do you currently find most inspirational in the world? Hmm. Ooh. I'm gonna have to get back to you on that. That that's like playing favorites, you know. <laughs> well, that's your answer is a fair answer. So, man, wow, wow, Kevin, thank you, thank yeah, you. Thank name, you give me that website one more time where people can find out more about you. Feedabrain.com. Feedabrain.com. I'm on Feedabrain on all the social media. Um, as well, just at feed a brain. Awesome. Which is kind of crazy. I was like, this isn't taken. Oh, they must have been just reserving it for me. Uh, cool. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you for breaking normal and illuminating the idea that sometimes maybe it's all I got shine some light and there's nothing to break. Just keep illuminating our, what's going on with awareness and asking questions mm-hmm. and doing research and maybe not asking others to direct you as much but asking yourself within seeing what bubbles up um that's a lot of what i was reminded of by listening Mm. to you explore your story out loud and thank you for doing it until next time peace this boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society life is a choice the meaning is what you make it Chapter 11, Everything is Natural. I believe that everything on earth, everything around and within you is natural. 
everything you can see, touch, taste, smell, or hear, all inner space and outer space. There's no such thing as all natural or not natural because everything is. We are made of the same materials as the earth and the earth is made of the same materials as the universe and the universe is made of the same materials as the multiverse and on and on. There is nothing outside our world, no shelf labeled unnatural from which we can grab a bottle of something and sprinkle it on an otherwise natural dish and thereby make it unnatural. Even high fructose corn syrup is natural, even GMOs. Both are the result of a human being, which is a natural being, interacting with other natural beings to isolate parts of that being and enhance certain characteristics. Sweetness in the case of high fructose corn syrup. This chapter is about diet and physical well-being, though my intention is to use diet to open up the consideration that the food we eat and the way we eat it influences other aspects of our lives because how we do anything is indicative of how we do everything. We are what we eat, but maybe it is equally true that we are what we look at, what we listen to, what we touch, taste, and think. The poison is in the dosage and the medicine is in the poison. It is possible to have too much of a good thing and it is possible to have too little of a bad one. It is also possible to cleanse your health away, just as it is possible to eat yourself to death. I'll never forget what our taxi driver in Jamaica told us as he escorted us around the island in search of the best coconuts. He sagely expressed, Be careful what you eat, or you'll dig a grave with your teeth. My grandma lived to be 100. She was one of the healthiest people I knew, and yet... As far as I could tell, she didn't follow a strict dietary regimen or ride some roller coaster of splurging and purging or gluttony and fasting. She didn't feel guilty about eating dessert, and she didn't eat her vegetables simply because she was supposed to. She ate when she was hungry and stopped eating before she felt full. In her later years, when her caloric demands were low, she could seemingly make a meal out of a single strawberry by savoring it, by eating it slowly, and by being grateful and present as she did. I take my inspiration from her, though my own journey has gone down many paths. Sometimes the path I found myself on became the path I lost myself on. It starts in the house I grew up in, where I was on a strict seafood diet. Meat, Potatoes, vegetables, Oreos, Coca-Cola, Fruit Loops, Scooby Snacks, you name it. If I saw it, I ate it. At school, the lunch often included chicken nuggets shaped like dinosaurs. I even drank Coca-Cola as my sports drink when I was captain of the high school baseball team. As for the milk, let's just say it was highly manipulated by humans before it even left the cow. It's just food. That pretty much sums up my attitude at the time. The seafood diet continued through my childhood and into high school. The difference was that now I wanted to gain weight so I could throw a faster fastball. I started eating more, more meat, more fast food, more whatever, while also supplementing creatine and protein. It worked in the sense that I got bigger and stronger, though to judge from photos, I was also puffy and inflamed. When I got to college, my priorities shifted. 
from sport performance to aesthetics. Girls didn't care how fast I could throw a baseball, only how fast it looked like I could throw one, or at least that's what I thought at the time. My workouts at this time had more to do with getting muscular than with being healthy and mobile. I still ate a lot of meat and protein, but thanks to inspiration from my brother, who had recently gotten ripped, I also chowed down on green vegetables with dinner. That one change made a noticeable difference. The climax of this seafood approach came the year I graduated college at a New Year's Eve party I put on. For a lot of reasons, I didn't eat much that day, and before the party, all I had was an apple. I wasn't as aware of my body then as I am now, so I didn't hesitate to drink alcohol once the party got started, nor did I hesitate to mix in a cigar and cannabis. Shortly into my own party, I was so messed up I had to leave. I asked my friends to take me to a hotel. I'd seen people throwing up on the side of the road before, and I always wondered how they let that happen. That night, I found out. Before reaching the hotel, I hollered to pull over and emptied my stomach onto the curb. Once there, I fell immediately into bed. I actually started crying because of how miserable I felt. I remember waking up sometime later, looking around the room at my friends, who by now were also messed up, and commenting to myself at how strange they looked. I went into the bathroom to puke again, but when nothing came up, I stood at the sink and splashed water in my face. The room was spinning, but by looking at my own eyes, I was able to steady myself. I stared into them for a long time, seeing more layers and depth and nuance than I'd seen before. Eventually, I started to pray. I pleaded with God to remove from my body whatever it was that was still making me sick. I promised to never again consume any of the things I had that night and to stop polluting my body altogether. I would stay clean, I decided, until the next calendar landmark, which happened to be my brother's birthday in February. It's strange. I seemed to sober up right there. I splashed water on my face, then walked out of the bathroom and saw my friends laying around and told them I was going back to the party, which I did and had an awesome time. The next day, I realized that my brother's birthday was exactly 40 days and 40 nights away, and that synchronicity inspired me to up the ante. I decided to cut out even more than weed, alcohol, and tobacco. I dropped coffee, masturbation, candy, and everything else I deemed to be junk food. His birthday came and went, and I kept going. Here is where the appeal of diets becomes especially potent. Diets, like dogmas, are alluring in their certainty. The mantra, all or nothing, is simple. It's clean division with no remainder and leaves little room for doubt or deliberation. Sometimes it is easier to be told what one can do and cannot do than it is to make and take responsibility for one's own decisions. Whenever a question arises, all a person has to do is pull out the stone tablet someone else wrote and read it for the answer. Adopt a diet or a dogma, and one no longer has to think for oneself. The appeal of a raw vegan diet is that it is clean and cleansing. Its promise is to make sure there is nothing bad inside your body, and it carries the added benefit of being morally superior to other diets, especially those that include meat. 
At that time in my life, I wanted to be clean, both inside and out. And I enjoyed the newfound energy and clarity I felt. And because my brothers and I were traveling to places like Costa Rica for retreats and surfing, the transition to pure raw vegan seemed natural. At first, it was great. My energy, like I said, shot way up instead of dropping like I had expected. My eyes seemed clearer. My skin glowed. Everything about me seemed more radiant. I was pooping, I imagined, as free and as easy as a monkey for the first time in years. My brothers reported similar results. We felt clean, converted, born again. We spent the days surfing in the sunshine and eating star fruit on the shore. In addition to coconuts, mangoes, papaya, star apples, milk fruit, cherimoya, and jackfruit. The challenges arose when it came time to go back home to Georgia, and the amount of fresh tropical fruits became limited. We had discovered the gospel, and the last thing we wanted to do was lose it. So, we made sure that didn't happen. Our business was mostly travel anyway, first as mobile marketers and tour managers, and later as retreat hosts. So we made sure to travel to places and host retreats where our food literally was everywhere. Islands, tropical locations, California. Transit presented some challenges as the airports were like food deserts littered with kryptonite. We began packing less clothes to have more room for fruit. I was surprised overall that it wasn't harder. On the one hand, the menu of permissible food was limited, but on the other hand, there was no shortage. For months, I felt amazing and experienced a newfound appreciation for nature that I might have never known had I not gone off meat and cooked foods. The earth, I realized, provides everything. Not that anything I ate before that point came from anywhere other than the earth, because it's all natural, but it usually came from the earth via the hand and obvious manipulation of someone else. The feeling of picking produce straight from the tree or vine on which it grew, however, and immediately eating it, was empowering and eye-opening. In that pure and simple act, the fingerprint of man's manipulation was almost hidden from sight. In addition, it brought clarity and understanding into the natural seasons and cycles of ripeness and life in general. Those cycles carried over and were reflected in the seasons of my own life. Overall, I felt clean and unadulterated, like I was getting back to something primal and elemental, the bodily equivalent of unlearning all the things I'd been forced to learn. I also noticed that I was less aggressive, less combative. I was more willing to glow with the flow. I grew my hair out, took fewer showers, let go of deodorant and soap, and strangely enough, felt cleaner and smelled better. But the purity that makes raw veganism so alluring is also what makes it so punishing. Purity is an ideal, an abstraction dangling above a distant horizon. The closer you get, the further away it seems. In pursuit of this ideal, slowly but surely, my life began to revolve around food. I began noticing sensations that I imagined were symptoms of anxiety, all in relation to my food choices and options. If I didn't have a bundle of spotted bananas nearby, aka dinosaur wieners, the nervousness was almost palpable. Eating is one of the most social activities humans engage in, and yet I couldn't go out or to a friend's house without thinking about what I was going to eat. 
non-organic produce presented a quandary. The sight of someone eating meat created a flashing sensation that I associated with anger. I had heard stories from fellow raw vegans about cravings and hungers. Confessions, really. Some of them reported shame about having cheated on their diets by gorging on meat in secret, only to puke it up all later. I remember one confession that really impacted me. A young vegan woman had admitted to gorging on meat in her closet. Their confessions rang true to my own challenges. I too had cheated. My friends and I, in the effort of expelling all cravings for meat, had gone to a Brazilian steakhouse one night in Costa Rica to gorge ourselves. The next day, I woke up in a sort of food hangover filled with shame. I felt polluted and clogged up. The only positive, as far as I could tell, was that the desire to eat meat was temporarily vanquished. The thought of it was no longer tempting, but grossed me out. That was the start of an addiction-like cycle of using cheat meals once or twice a month. They served two purposes. First, they provided a light at the end of the tunnel, a distant reward I could look forward to and stay motivated. Second, they were a sort of punishment making me so sick as to kill my cravings. It didn't seem healthy to me, but I rationalized that it was normal. After a few months on this cycle, I seemed to break through. I no longer needed cheat meals. I no longer slipped up. And for the next six months, I ate nothing but raw, organic, and vegan. The symptoms were subtle at first, but visible. My gums receded. My hair thinned. My skin seemed to dull. I got skinnier and fatter at the same time. My parents and acquaintances began to look at me strangely because part of my rawness was letting my hair grow even more and neglecting or looking down on personal hygiene. Some of their comments shook my dogma, caused me to doubt, but I made sure not to show it. Outwardly, I became even stricter in my diet and more adamant in my faith. They just don't know any better, I told myself. The lesson here is that arguing with someone against a behavior that you think is bad for them might be the least effective way to get them to change that behavior because it incites more resistance. When you provide someone with all the reasons why they shouldn't do something or eat something, they automatically begin to construct the opposing case. Inside, I was questioning, and I was seeing signs I couldn't ignore. For example, the anger and the wrath that fellow believers directed towards heretics, shooting and shaming everyone who believed differently. That shooting and shaming was also directed inwardly and at sinners within the group. Even more puzzling was the lack of interest I now had in the opposite sex. At a summer fruit festival, a sort of woodstock for vegans full of young and beautiful women, I was surprised at how little interest I had in pursuing intimacy with them. Other men didn't seem as interested as I would expect. It was like a spring break without sexual energy because all the energy was directed towards our food. People were falling in love, not necessarily with each other, but with certain fruits and vegetables. Some compared mangoes and bananas or bragged about who had brought the most exotic fruit to the party. People tried durian or jackfruit for the first time and were converted, while any support of meat or animal products was taboo. I might have gotten over these observations were it not for the observation that I no longer woke up with something that I'd heard was normal for young men. Morning wood. I hadn't had that in months. One day my brother took a bite of salmon and I freaked out on him. 
I exhibited the same kind of anger towards him that I observed in others. He called me out on it and told me to look in the mirror. I realized that my anger might have been hiding the fact I secretly wanted a bite too. I decided to listen to myself and to my dad who was encouraging me to give it a try by taking a bite. The next morning, that thing that hadn't happened in months spontaneously happened. My boxer shorts were like a teepee held up from within by an old friend. That's when I knew my diet was over. I later got my testosterone checked and it turned out that my hormonal chart read like that of an 80-year-old man. The Buddhists have a metaphor about using a boat to cross the river and then dropping the boat once you get to the other side. The tendency some people have is to continue carrying the boat when they no longer need it so that it eventually slows them down. That hormone test, as well as the evidence in my pants or lack thereof, and the advice I got from other guys convinced me to drop it. That was five years ago. My diet now changes from day to day based on where I am and what I'm doing. I trust that the way to nourish myself is not by adopting someone else's dogma and not by creating my own, but by observing certain parameters and guidelines based on my own experience. The attachment to getting answers from somewhere outside myself may have been part of the sickness I was originally overcoming. I've learned that there is a difference between eating to survive, eating to cope, and eating to thrive. I've learned to let go of perfection and that what matters is what I do most of the time or out of habit. I've learned that quick fixes are usually short-lived and not sustainable in the long term. And I've learned that different people can eat the same exact food and get different results. I've learned that food is fuel for my fire, not the fire itself. My spirit is the fire, and that fire can burn, clean, and refine almost anything if my intention is right. Getting to this point involved learning to be okay with the sensation of hunger and allowing myself to actually feel it before making it go away with food. Hunger is a primal sensation, and the way we deal with it might be indicative of how we deal with other sensations. I wonder if that is why so many religious and spiritual practices incorporate rituals of fasting, abstaining from taking nourishment. Whether it's going days at a time without food, not eating until the sun goes down, or merely skipping breakfast, there seems to be physical and spiritual benefits to experiencing hunger. Spiritually, I imagine that people go to the desert and abstain from food for a time when they are wanting clarity on some challenge or aspect of their life. When someone is in that position, food might be a distraction, something that keeps them from getting to the core of whatever issue they're working through. Instead of sitting with the emotion or sensation, they might eat impulsively as a mild form of self-sabotage. They might eat something, not feel satisfied, eat more, not feel satisfied, and eat more still. In those instances, no amount of food will satisfy because it's not the food they are hungry for, and the answer to that challenge is not in the fridge or pantry. Some holistic practitioners talk about how fasting gives the body the opportunity to cleanse itself and regenerate, while others say skipping breakfast allows them to focus on other tasks and be more productive during the day. Additionally, many modern dehydrated people have mistaken thirst for hunger. 
I doubt anyone would think it is strange to say that drinking wine instead of tequila might influence the kind of night one is going to have, or even more drastically, drinking only water. One would expect that to be the case, which is why over the years we've experimented so much with different spirits. It is the same with your food. Eating meat produces different energetic results in your body than eating plants. Eating sugar does something different than eating fat. And eating the two combined does something different still. I've noticed that a lot of people seem to eat foods that don't agree with them and then mask the symptoms of that disagreement because they're either moving too quickly or too distractedly to appreciate and make choices based on the feedback. It's just food, they say, and try to get it as cheaply as possible. Pharmacies help perpetuate the cycle because anyone can buy a pill to suppress almost any symptom from heartburn to indigestion to headaches to runny noses to acne. Solely relying on these cover-ups is the dietary equivalent of damning one's emotions, which often results in more severe damning. This is why I'm not on a seafood diet anymore, nor am I on a restrictive vegan or paleo diet. Some days I eat meat, some days I eat pancakes, some days I eat salad. Some days I eat breakfast, some days I don't eat anything at all, or at least not until dinner. My diet is simple. I don't eat anything I don't believe is good for me. And before putting anything in my mouth, I choose to believe that it is healthy. Oh, so I can just sit around eating candy all day, but as long as I tell myself that it's good for me, I'll be okay? Well, it depends on whether you truly believe it. And at this point in the book, having done the prior exercises and gotten in touch with your inner responses, I imagine you will sense whether you truly believe it or not. From my perspective, that question, the way it is worded, seems more deflective than sincere. Whenever I go to a restaurant, they give me a menu. For the most part, I can only order things directly on that menu. In the same way, I believe that wherever I'm living, wherever I have chosen to live, God has provided a menu for that location. And even though everything is natural, I believe that if I want to be in optimal health and divine brilliance, it is in my best interest to eat what is directly around me, the plants that grow best in that climate and the animals that thrive there. I figure I might as well shop locally too to support the people and businesses around me. Whatever I'm going to eat, I make the best of it. I remind myself to be grateful and appreciative for what I am able to consume. If I don't believe it is good for me, I either change my beliefs or I don't eat it. And this way, the food gives me the chance to check in with myself to see how I'm feeling and to decide based on that rather than the opinions of someone else. A good practice is to pray before eating as so many traditional societies have done and still do. It connects us to our food and prepares the body and spirit to receive it. I like to take a moment to pray and reflect on all that went into the food that I'm about to eat. That means the ingredients. It means the animals and what they ate. It means the sun and the rain and the cycle of seasons. It means the farmers who cultivated the land, the people who made and operated the machinery, it means for the truck drivers, the pilots, the railroad workers, the engineers, the chefs, and the dishwashers. On and on and on. You'll find, I imagine, 
that it is harder to feel disconnected from the world when you practice gratitude for everything you eat. Each morsel is a chain of connections leading back to the environment from which we came. By eating it, you too are forming a link in that chain. And praying for everything, you pray for everything because that's how much it takes to make a meal possible.